0: it just might be the most counterintuitive thing you could ever do hopping aboard a plane destined to fly directly into the eye of a hurricane as america and other nations reel from three massive recent hurricanes rapid city meteorologist susan sanders shares with listeners the dangerous but rewarding time she spent as a hurricane hunter also this week hear from journal reporter samuel blackstone about the care he takes in covering government and how he breaks down the annual city and county spending plans i'm journal editor bart fankook and i'll be your host on this latest episode of Journal Storytellers and Newsmakers. Well, I'm here today with uh, Susan Sanders, a meteorologist with the National Weather Service here in Rapid City. Uh, Welcome to the Journal and uh, thanks for being here.
1: Well, thanks for inviting me to talk
0: with you. So um, the reason we connected is not just because I, myself, and I think uh, everyone in South Dakota and the world really has an interest in weather, but uh, you're hosting a conference over at the Journey Museum this week. And maybe you can just tell me briefly um, what's going on over there and uh, why you're doing it and what you hope to accomplish.
1: Well, we've invited our public safety officials and media partners to talk with us about Uh, getting a consistent weather message, especially for uh, hazardous weather that uh, affects people, that impacts their livelihoods, and also to uh, get some feedback on what the public might perceive that we may not hear about. Obviously, uh, you you hear things about, I I know the Two Cents column will have things about the weather, so uh, they can get a hold of you sometimes better than than us. So uh, it's a two-way conversation that we're having, and we hope to improve our services by working with you and then eventually with the public more.
0: And we just wrapped up a panel I was on it, and I thought it went very well. So I think you're on to something good over there. Um, so let's talk about the drought in South Dakota, uh, you know, throughout here in the upper great plains, it's been really an ongoing, uh, uh, problem. And, uh, so I know there was a new drought to report today. And so what do, what do you know about the drought here in Western South Dakota? And how are we doing?
1: Well, uh, we've had some rain recently, but you know, it hasn't covered the whole area. So the, the drought continues pretty much across all of Western South Dakota and uh, into North Dakota as well. And uh, there has been some improvement in some area because of that rain. But uh, at this point, you know, it doesn't do a lot of good because of the crops are done growing, the, the grass is cured. And so uh, it can help fill up uh, stock downs, which is a, a little bit of a relief. But at, at this point, it's, it's not as much help as it could be had we gotten the rains in the spring when we really needed it more.
0: I know, you know, drought affects the pheasant population obviously ranchers and farmers. Um, how do you measure the drought uh, over time? And also, how do you measure fire risk? Because I know they're associated.
1: Well, first of all, for the drought, we uh, look at uh, what is normal. So normal or average precipitation is based on a 30-year amount. And it goes from like 1981 through 2010 is our current normal time frame. And so our current precipitation is measured according to that. And we compare how it is Compared to, to that time frame, and we say how much below or above normal we are for any particular time. Uh, so now that that normal period does include uh, some very wet times, but also some very dry times. You know, especially the, the late 80s here, where our Pactola really came down, but also the early part of 2000, you know, 2000, 2001 through 2007, where we had uh, quite an extended drought. So our, our normals are, are compared to that. That's why they have a longer period, so that it encompasses both wet and, and wet, dry times.
0: I see. So you have a historic baseline to compare to.
1: Right, exactly. And we do have, it's sort of cyclical. You know, it goes into maybe three to five to seven years, and then it'll come back. It's 2008, it started raining more. And instead of 2012, well, we've had some pretty wet years, and now we're down a little bit more this year. We'll have to see what happens for the coming years.
0: Well, we always hope for regular rain, that's for sure.
1: And related to fire, that is the second part of your question, that's kind of a a shorter term thing. So uh, we look at, especially for the grassland fire danger, that can vary day to day. And so it really depends on how dry are the fuels, which on the prairie it's the grass, and in the forest service it's the trees, and weather conditions. So some days it'll be low, and the next day, it'll be high or extreme, just because of the difference in temperature. Wind plays a big factor on the planes on fire spread, and that's what we're talking about: this fire danger. So, if a fire starts, whether it's human caused by machinery or cigarette butt being thrown out, or lightning, it's not just how the fire starts, but how fast it spread as well. I see. Yeah.
0: Um, So you were telling me on the phone the other day, uh, we were talking hurricanes, and that you had an interesting uh, time in your career, an interesting job. Maybe you can tell me about your time as a hurricane chaser.
1: (laughs) Yeah, when I was in the Air Force, and that was uh, right after I graduated from college. In fact, my first forecasting job was at Ellsworth, so I learned the challenges of the Black Hills weather pretty early, but then I, I went down to Mississippi. I was a Hurricane Hunter air crew member, and we flew right into the eye of the hurricane. So we were measuring the winds at the flight level, and when we got into the eye, the center part of the hurricane that you see so clearly on these satellite images now, then we dropped a tube down there that measured the winds and the pressure and the temperature into the eye. And that's where people see that central pressure as one of the uh, factors in determining that hurricane strength between one and five and so then we it radioed back up into the plane and then we transmitted that out to the ground stations, to the hurricane center to help them predict the hurricane track and also to know how strong that hurricane was.
0: Wow, wow, and, and so is it true that the eye of the hurricane is the most calm part of the hurricane? I've always heard that and I don't know if that's true.
1: Right, yeah, when you're, you're driving through that eye wall and it's thunderstorms, you know, think about the worst, the heaviest rain you've ever been on uh, like driving on a washboard road, you're sort of bumping up and down. You're getting some little updrafts and downdrafts as you're going through that. And you break out into this really sunny, clear eye usually. It was a pretty good, strong hurricane. It was pretty neat to, to see that difference in the conditions in that sort of time frame. Is, is it worth the white knuckling <laughs> of flying through the
0: washboard <laughs> and through the, wa- the, through the bands to get to that eye? It's experience the neat feeling. Well, for a meteorologist, yes, it was. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you made it. That sounds absolutely terrifying to me. Uh, so, obviously, uh, hurricanes central down in the southeastern uh, U.S. and in the Caribbean. What's your take on three major named storms coming right in a row? And uh, it seems extremely rare to me, as someone who had lived in Florida. And and what 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 do you feel as uh, someone whose uh, career centers around the weather when you see that happening?
1: Well, this is our peak. Time for hurricanes. So it hasn't been unheard of for us to get hurricanes uh, this time of year. Uh, what's unusual is that they have been pretty intense for so many in a row. You know, sometimes you may have a big one and then another one, but not quite as strong. Uh, of course, the two of them have affected the mainland of the United States uh, pretty close. But like you were telling me with Charlie in Florida that you experienced, that 2004, 2005 were pretty active years for storms hitting the mainland. So it really depends on that weather pattern. And so there can be shifts just a little bit, uh, the jet stream, that's why uh, ahead of uh, Hurricane Harvey and Irma, that we were sending up weather balloons more often to be put into our computer forecast models that helped make a better forecast so that the forecasters forecasting the hurricanes would know where that hurricane was gonna make that critical turn. Before, you know, whether it would come to the mainland of the United States or whether it would curve over or like Florida saw West Coast or East Coast made a big difference in right, where right. that storm track was.
0: Big time flooding even in Jacksonville. It didn't get hit, but the storm right. surge was massive there. So talking about forecasting, that's a great segue into, uh, I understand that the it's not the, is it a long-term forecast for the Black Hills that was released today? Uh, or maybe you can explain what that forecast is that came out and, and then what it says.
1: Well, our uh, forecast outlook for the next month, so October, and then the next three months, so October, November, December, came out today. And so it's trending from a better chance of above normal temperatures in October to less chance of above normal temperatures as we go into winter.
0: Less chance. So a warmer fall (laughs) and then maybe not a warm winter. Is that
1: yeah. Well, more likely to be warm, and that's what we have. It's it's not amount of degrees above or below normal our outlooks are issued for, but the likelihood of above or below normal. So we can be very confident that it's going to be above normal, but it only may be a degree or two above normal. So I see, it's the I see. likelihood, right? So not necessarily
0: that, that extended summer we had last year where right. the lakes stayed open much longer and that kind of thing. Right. What, to, I wonder um, in terms of severe weather, um, uh, what could you tell people to uh, how to be prepared? And because uh, you know, one day here it can be terrific weather and the next day you know, we, we can have a, a, a winter storm. So what, what, what would you urge people to do in advance of before things get bad?
1: Right, and you know, we're getting to the end of September. Uh, In two weeks, we'll be observing the anniversary of the 2013 blizzard. So it can come up pretty quickly, you know, and and right before that, the week before that storm, in fact, four days before even we had 85 degrees. So, yes, the weather around the Black Hills can change very quickly. So, it's a good time now to get prepared. Things like making sure you have emergency supplies and that they're useful. You know, you don't want a flashlight, but no batteries. Uh, to start thinking about getting some fuel if you have a generator or alternate fuel source and, and just putting things together, having them in your home. And, and they don't necessarily have to be in a box, but at least be available for you to get to pretty quickly. And something else that we really urge people to think about too is that when we start talking about a winter storm watch and we're talking about potential blizzard conditions in a year, in a day or two, that especially if they're dependent on oxygen, which requires electricity to generate, or uh, they have some other condition where if the power's out and they can't get sufficient heat in the house, go someplace ahead of time so that they'll have those resources, that they can stay on oxygen, that they can stay warm enough and and go through the blizzard. Because we've realized that in the last few years, that's been the biggest response, uh, request for assistance after the storm is... Uh, my power's out, I'm out of oxygen, or it's getting cold in here, I don't have any more fuel, I need to get someplace warm. So especially people living in rural areas. But in that blizzard, that took out power in town, too, that people probably weren't expecting as much as they thought that, oh, we always have our services. Yeah,
0: at least for a couple days. Well, that's terrific advice, and I want to thank you for coming in and sharing some of your insights. And uh, stay out of those hurricanes and those (laughs) eyes, because uh, uh, I was certainly worried for your safety flying into those.
1: Well, one thing I do uh, appreciate about, I, I know blizzards can be bad, and I know that uh, we lost a lot of cattle in that blizzard, but uh, at least when the snow melts, uh, most of our buildings are still standing, which is a good thing that's compared right. to what we see down there. Yeah,
0: that's for sure. Well, thank you
1: so much, Susan, for coming in. Okay, well, Thank you.
0: Welcome back to Journal Storytellers and Newsmakers. Now I'm here with Rapid City Journal reporter, Samuel Blackstone. Sam covers uh, city government for the paper and was one of our uh, most prolific writers. So Sam, you've got an interesting piece that ran over the weekend regarding whether or not this Rapid City Commission, or council rather, should approve the cost of living tax increase that the state allows them and uh, they can impose that on taxpayers to compensate for basically the rising cost of doing business each year. Tell us then about the new wrinkle on the so-called CPI tax hike.
2: Um, well, the new wrinkle here is that it appears like it's headed toward an initiated measure, um, which sounds dif- uh, a bit odd. You think it would be a referendum, but there's a bunch of legality in that. So, in essence, it seems like Tanchi Weaver and Citizens for Liberty are going to start collecting signatures and hope to bring the issue forward for a vote to Rapid Cityans about whether or not they want to approve this tax increase, which would, like you said, would be one percent. And um, so the the wrinkle here is that vote appears to be in coming in the coming months, probably in early 2018. And also the fact that there's a lot of discussion about how much the election, the special election would cost. And um, obviously that's a big issue too, because the tax raise is relatively small. It's about $160,000. It would be an additional collection for the city. The estimate for the cost of the election was, I think, tabbed at about $60,000, but um, there's all sorts of other aspects to it. I mean, if the city has to collect these taxes because they have to submit the budget by September 30th, so they're going to collect the tax. So if it's repealed, then they would have to calculate and issue checks to every citizen in Rapid City, which would obviously take a lot of staff time and money to issue checks that will be pretty nominal in value I uh, think it's uh, probably be less than $10 for everyone and the uh, city actually has a policy right now where they don't issue refund checks left for less than $10 because the cost of calculating and <laughs> issuing these checks is worth more than the actual cost of the check and a lot of the time people don't ever go to the bank and cash these checks because they're such a small value so it's, it gets yeah, it's pretty different. interesting, and
0: I know that this uh, uh, historically has been a tax increase that the council just uh, automatically figured into their budget, and a previous mayor then raised the question that we need to have the council vote on it, and so now it looks like the voters are, might have a chance to vote on it. And as we know, uh, in Pennington County, or West River particu- in particular, people don't like to tax themselves, so there's a, a, a very little chance, I think, that uh, it, it would actually pass, but well, it's interesting to see how that plays out. So when you have something like that come up um, uh, that uh, might have some controversy surrounding it, and, uh, so what's your approach as a reporter? How do you start digging into an issue like that uh, to get to the point uh, of the level of understanding you have now? Um, I guess thing
2: I like to do is talk to city finance officers, talk to people, staffers, because they have the actual numbers. Uh, I guess the most important thing I find is just answer the questions that when you think of it, what are citizens going to want to know? I don't think they necessarily care about all the percentages or how much is it additional for the city as much as they want to know. How much is it going to cost me for a $100,000 evaluation or whatever? How much is it more are they going to be asking of me? And uh, so I think uh, it's it can be very mind-boggling when you get into it and it's, but when you think about what citizens want to know it's usually fairly simple questions that you need to answer for them. So getting the numbers and the facts correct, getting those those facts and answers to the people is basically what I try to do. And all the other noise surrounding it is important to get a little idea of where people stand on this in the council and who voted for it and who voted against it and why. But um, as far as just the numbers and what how it's going to affect people's pocketbooks, I think that's, that's the most important thing to keep in mind always and just make sure you have the numbers right and not, if someone says something in a meeting, I always try and talk to the finance officer to make sure that the number they're saying is actually correct, because a lot of the times it's it's not.
3: That's that old
0: journalism adage: if your mother tells you that she loves you, you go and ask your father to confirm if that <laughs> that's true, right? Exactly. Uh, but I'm sure, Sam, that your mother loves you a lot. <laughs> uh, so, and now we're getting into the the heart and the meat of the budget process for both the city and the county. Um, can you share with our listeners how you even begin? Is that some of the same process you use there? Is start with the officials? Uh, uh, the the non-elected officials and then head to elected officials who have something to say? or, or what, what, How do you dig into something as big as a city budget? Yeah, it's talking
2: to the county auditor, Julie Pearson, the city finance officer, uh, Pauline Sumption. They have, obviously, all the documents, um, and you can parse through them yourself. Uh, obviously, this is the first time I've covered a budget, so it was definitely intimidating at the start, but um, once you start to understand the issues that seem to crop up every year, you can get a pretty good, firm idea of, what people talk about every year and what they want to know about. And um, so, yeah, usually I use the opinions that are said by commissioners or council members in the meetings because that's when they really get into the nitty gritty. You can call them afterwards if you'd like to clarify things, but usually what they're saying in the meetings is going to be the most clear and, and they're the most cognizant of what's going on in those moments because even if you Talk to people after the meeting, or you come up the next meeting for commissioners and council members. I see a lot of the time they've kind of forget where they left off because you get so deep into it in the meetings that you can not understand what the motion that you made, even though you understood it fully during the meeting. So a lot of times I try and use the quotes then because those are the times when they're most clear understanding of what's going on.
0: When you have a story with a lot of numbers in it, do you run that? Uh, do you allow city officials or county officials to see that story uh, before it's published, <laughs> or how do you how do you go about making sure that? Uh, you know, you have the numbers, right? right? Talking to either confirming
2: with the communications directors like Gerald Shoemaker, spokesman for the city, or just talking directly to the, the head staff. Because a lot of time, if I go to the finance office or if I go to the auditor and try and ask anyone something like after the meeting yesterday, I try to ask them something. No one really knows except the head auditor who's at lunch. So you just got to make sure you call her when you get back to the office and before you put the number on there. Just make sure that because they're the ones who know and they're the ones who, when you see these meetings everyone else is kind of working on the fringes and they're the ones who heads are in it all the time. So if you want to know the answer, you've really got to ask them and them only because they're the ones who really know as
0: well. As so you double check with them, but you don't allow them. And our listeners should know, we never allow any uh, source to preview a story before it runs. So the no. answer the answer to that question, I'll answer for you is absolutely not. i tried once and I yelled that for it. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, we want to be right, but we can't allow uh, that level of uh, what ultimately could end up being censorship. So what's been your most challenging task covering local government as uh, someone who moved here from the East Coast, uh, new to the area, uh, uh, what did you find was a, a point where a <laughs> hurdle maybe you had to cross or something that uh, was a challenge for you? Well, there's
2: a lot of issues that have a lot of backstory and history. The Civic Center is one. Um, the sign ordinances and billboards is another for the city. Um, and obviously the budget um, is has the same kind of issues coming up. So I think... It's really the backstory when I first got here I wrote a really long story about the Civic Center which was kind of giving everyone the backstory but it was also just for me to kind of in essence write a research paper on it and and understand it myself so I did a ton of reporting for that so in the future I could always go back to that story and know I did that reporting and had those answers there so really the the hardest part is just falling into these issues that have been going on for five ten fifteen years even lawsuits pending litigation a lot of those, also with the Americans with Disabilities Act, violations, things of that nature. They have so much history and backstory, and and falling into
0: it and then trying to know all that and catch up on it very quickly is the biggest challenge, I'd say. Well, and our readers should know that we have access to uh, our articles all the way back to uh, the 1800s, but we have a computerized system where you can look about things. You can put in Rushmore Plaza Civic Center and stories from as far back as Um, the aughts will come up and you can quickly see what was written in the past. So we're really creating a record for our readers, but a reference for our own uh, reporters in-house. Well, thanks a lot, Sam. I want to just thank you for being here with us today, and uh, um, I can share, I think, with our listeners that I think you're doing a great job, and I'm really glad you're here. And uh, I think uh, readers are well served by the work you do, so thanks for spending some time with us today. Yeah, thanks for giving me the chance.
3: (music) Thank <music>